Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Dr. Kevin Simon. He is an attending child and adolescent psychiatrist and addiction medicine specialist at Boston Children's Hospital and an instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Simon also serves as the first chief behavioral health officer for the city of Boston. He's also a husband and a dad of two little ones and finds time to sleep in between wearing all those various hats. Welcome, Dr. Simon. Thank you. I feel like we could do an entire episode just on how you sleep, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Today, we want to talk about adolescence and addiction. And I mean, there's so much that parents fear, worry about, and feel they don't understand about addiction and... I think that we all have a feeling of like, it's our job to stop this from ever happening, but we kind of don't know what direction it's coming from. If somebody, if you had an elevator, we call it the elevator pitch in the entertainment business. If you were to get in an elevator with somebody and say one thing that you understand currently about childhood addiction, let's start at the top of the triangle. What would that thing be? Sure. So I would say all youth are potentially at risk. And as adults, we should do everything that's possible to try to mitigate or prevent those that are at risk from being those who are experiencing substance use disorders and and potentially addiction. That'd be the one-liner in the elevator that that I would tell uh, other people. That's perfect. And then we're going to dig in on what that looks like. Right. And we talked about, I met Dr. Simon in person a couple of months ago and said, I would love to have you on this podcast. But what was so interesting when we spoke that night, we talked about some of the ways that kids use, like how kids use the methods that they're using. The the very methods are just not things that we're familiar with. So it's hard to know how to tell our kids what to watch out for, what's safe, what's not, what's appropriate when we don't even know you know, what they are. So I thought we would talk maybe about some of those methods. And the first one is vaping. It's just not something that was available when we were adolescents as a choice, good or bad. And I think that we really don't understand. It's sold to us as something that's safer than smoking, or at least at one point it was sold as safer. And it is something else than that. But break it down for us, how kids vape and what they use it for and and what we need to watch out for. Yeah, no, so uh, it's a good setup. In terms of thinking about when I was growing up, yeah, there was a commercial, just stop, 
or the cracked egg on in the frying pan. Oh, this is your brain on drugs. We're going to link to it because the youngs do not know that commercial. This is your brain on drugs. And then Nancy Reagan told us, I think you might, this might be before your time. Just say no. That was it. That was how we were going to solve drugs. Right. Very simple. Totally worked. And it worked. (laughs) So in reference to the question about, you know, how is it that youth use substances? I know you initially asked me about vaping, but literally just wrote a paper about the accessibility of substances online and how there really are not great checks and balances in that, right? So it's literally, hey, are you 18 or are you 21? And kid just clicks yes, and that's the safeguard. So the accessibility of substances is pretty wide open. It's like the Wild West, as we might say. In terms of specific to vaping, so a vape or an electronical e-cigarette is any device that could look like a pen that I'm holding, for those who can't see me, that I'm, or a jump drive or a flash drive. They can be small, they can be large, but they have a device within it that gets heated up, and it so you heat up, and then it's aerosolized. So the liquid that a vape has, so that could be liquid nicotine, it could be uh, liquid cannabis that gets heated up and then you inhale that, I want to say smoke per se. And I'm trying to use the, the simplest language possible for the person that has no clue at all what a vape is. Yes, please do. <laughs> so that's a vaping device. And oftentimes you asked earlier, you know, are vapes safer than other forms of engaging substances? So the reason e-cigarettes or vaping devices came to be was the industry fully recognized that traditional cigarettes, like tobacco cigarettes, were not helpful and they were actually harmful. And so they didn't want to lose their you know, market share. And so they said, okay, well, how can we continue to have individuals engage with things like tobacco and nicotine? Oh, let's transition them from a traditional cigarette, which yes, cause, can potentially cause cancer. Let's keep that you know, population, but now let's just tell them, hey, this is safer, which in theory, an individual vape, yes, is safer than an individual cigarette. However, in our population, we're talking about youth. Well, youth are not having, you know, 10 plus pack years of smoking traditional cigarettes. So there's no health reason to transition from you are smoking a pack a day to now let's get you to a, you know, a vaping device, it's they're being introduced to the vaping device. And so that's where the public health kind of concern is, because now if you get introduced to a vaping device, unfortunately, you're getting exposed to higher concentrations than what would be normal of tobacco, of cannabis, of any other kind of liquid they want to put in that device. And so the adolescent brain or the developing brain does not yet have like the appropriate mechanism, we would say, to know about like delayed gratification. Like, let me not do this thing right now in third period. Let me wait till I go home, right? So you hear teachers, as I hear, you know, Jane, Johnny, Kyle, whomever, is often leaving class to go to the bathroom, to vape, in part on the sciencey side. So nicotine, right? You inhale nicotine or you, you vape nicotine within literally seconds. It's in your brain, and you get a little bit of a euphoric feeling, yet that only lasts about 10 minutes, which is why 
in the past, right, you, there was a colloquial term like chain smoking, right? You would smoke, and then it's like you're done, and you're like, ah, I got, you know, I want to do that again. I remember my uncles used to light one with the butt of the last cigarette, like just keep it going. Yes. So you keep it going, keep it going. So the same thing is happening with the vaping device. You do the inhale, 10 minutes you're feeling okay, and nicotine itself is a little bit of a stimulant, and so there's that that's happening. But kind of like a slot machine, if you're you know, at the casino, you want that reward again. And so what happens, you inhale again, and or you leave to go to the bathroom. Now, when that's happening at 13 or 14, you can just envision all the other things that are not happening that should be, that should prime you to understand, oh, there's things that I like, but I should like hold off and, you know, engage in that at a different time. Literally, when the brain hits broadly after 21, between 21 and 25, that ability to have what we call executive functioning, it's fully ripe and prime. And you can say, you know what, like full disclosure, I really like five guys, (laughs) yet I know I can't eat five guys every day. I shouldn't be eating five guys right now while, while we're recording this. I don't know what that was going to be a revelation of, but I didn't, I wasn't expecting five guys. You were like, full disclosure, I took a big breath. <laughs> no, so it's just to highlight something that I know I like, but I can't use it everywhere. I can't eat it every time or everywhere, right? Like there's a time and a place. Kids, if you don't learn that early, you can become the person. Again, you're engaging with this substance at 12 or 14, it skews your ability to attend to the things that, you know, broader society or maybe your family would say you should be doing, like your homework or chores. And so clinically, we see that very often is there's been an introduction of something that probably should be reserved for, you know, emerging adults or, you know, full-fledged adults. And the parents trying to contend managing that while simultaneously trying to raise the child And there's just like this concordance, we'd say, of the kid's brain is operating under one, you know, range of, I just want rewards. And the parent's brain is like, but you kind of have to have some safeguards. And when that happens, oh, chaos happens. That's kind of what's happening when I'm thinking about when I hear about a youth that's really young and they start to already engage in things, it's kind of the downstream consequences and the challenges in the home that are that are Well, I was going to ask about that because I think with the issue of impulsivity and dealing with kids as we do, and as we've talked about a lot on the podcast, on the spectrum, ADHD, other issues, ACEs, you know, adverse childhood experiences, that as I now have tweens and teens, and I look around at the kids who all came up together, I definitely see some parallels between kids who were the most impulsive four-year-olds and kids who are using some substances at 12 and 13. And there's a certain, and I think I was a little bit this kid, a need to be outside the box and chasing something. And I wonder how you see that. Is that, I'm looking at that completely anecdotally and hearing you talk about impulsivity and lack of impulse control. Is that something that you see feeding into, I guess, is there a specific type of kid that you look at and say, this is a kid I'm keeping my eye on around this, maybe more than others? Yeah, yeah. So your question really is, 
is there evidence that individuals with neurodevelopmental conditions like ADHD, ASD, and so forth, are they at greater risk than the general population? Yeah. Of developing substance use disorders? The answer is yes. So if you have ADHD, and I should note this, the answer is yes for the untreated person, right? And so we do have longitudinal data to suggest those that have ADHD, those that have autism spectrum disorder, when they're not appropriately managed. And when I say managed, not just medication, but like holistically parent training, wraparound services, when those things are not in place, that youth is, yes, at greater risk of developing potentially a substance use disorder. And case in point, right, so a lot of individuals are impulsive as, as they're younger. One of the questions that I tend to ask families during our evaluation is, tell me what your son or daughter does after school, right? I just really want to hear about any, it doesn't have to be a sport, it can be. So it could be lacrosse, it could be basketball, it could be soccer. That's completely fine. But then there's parents that say, oh, but my kid's not athletic. That's okay. Well, tell me about the art class or tell me about chess. Tell me about something that they're engaged in, right? Because oftentimes in our patient population, we find there's child has concerns, right? Let's say predating the engagement with the substance. Child has concerns, but then child's not engaged in anything outside or they didn't want to continue with swimming or something, right? And then the parent is suggesting, well, we've offered many things. And they say no. It's like, well, yes. Part of the parental responsibility is despite the no, you still nonetheless, hey, it is good to be engaged in team activities. Whether you're the worst one on the team or the best one on the team, the participation of it, the going to the practice, going to tutoring, it is very helpful. So I say this all to say, there are many youth that we find, there's like idle time. And idle time is generally not well used. <laughs> and so then you get a couple of kids of idle time looking things up and figuring out, oh, wait, there's basically an Uber for substances. Oh, yeah, I'm 18, I'm 21. And then the parents kind of confused, like, we didn't see it. It's like, yes, it's never just one decision that, you know, morphs into substance use disorder. It's many micro decisions of, okay, you don't want to do that. That's fine. You can stay home. And then it's like, oh, but then you don't want to do that. And then there's like the tension that happens when you want your child to do something, but they're pushing back. And some parents are very uncomfortable with that tension, but it's actually that tension is required because that's developing a skill of, yes, sometimes you have to engage in things that you don't want to do for the sake of, it's good for you. Okay. I want to talk more about that and possibly gently push back a little bit as a teen parent. After this break, we are talking to Dr. Kevin Simon of Boston Children's Hospital, and we will be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. 
For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, so I understand the dilemma of it's an idle child. is It's a, a garden for trouble, basically. We understand that. But as you say, this is all a web, right? Like our kids get depressed, then they lose interest in sports, then they're home more. We're trying to not kind of go after them and nag them because we're trying not to feed depression, which is making us worried. But then they're more disconnected, less involved in sports. I think it can be very easy to lose yourself in the web of there's eight different factors going on here. Yes, I want to keep them off of substances, but I don't want necessarily to shove them in a box they don't fit because they already feel like they don't belong. And so how do we I mean, it's a huge question, but what do you think when hearing that in terms of like looking at this thing of a kid who has lost their connection, you feel like, yes, that makes them susceptible to substance use. But as a parent, how much control do we have over getting them reconnected? Yeah. So I think what's important here is considering, well, what does it mean to have like a substance use disorder, right? In part, because even... The families that will be with me after our whole evaluation, and I'll say, oh, I've talked with our team. Here's where we are. They're like, well, how did you, yes, we talked, and yes, we had a, you know, a clinical session, but how did you come to this idea? So, and it'll lay the groundwork for then the actual answer to the, you know, how do we help a parent think about this? So, in terms of substances, when we're doing our interview, there's broadly 11 kind of things that we're assessing for. And we can do them for each different substance, uh, but here's the broadly the 11. Okay, is there what we say hazardous use, right? Like, is the person, so in the adult world, hazardous use might be, oh, drinking and driving, right? That's a hazard. So get a, a designated driver, right? In theory, for youth, kind of any use is, it kind of is all hazardous. Now, we do fully understand some people, quote unquote, and I 
air quotes here, you know, experimentation. They tried it one time, they don't ever do it again. Fully understand that that's there. But hazardous use in the youth population might be, well, continued ongoing use, right? So that's hazardous use. Has there been attempts to quit, but you've still nonetheless persisted, right? Meaning, you know what? I don't like how I feel when I hit that vape. You know, I'm just going to, like, not do it. I know basketball practices later today. I'm just not going to do it. Three hours later, you find yourself doing it. And not just three hours later, but, oh, three months later, you find yourself still doing it. Six months later, you, you but you've told yourself, I want to stop, right? So failure to um, discontinue. That's number two. Um, there used to be this idea of, like, legal problems. We've removed that because we recognize, like, historically, there's some structural issues there. Now, interpersonal relationship, is there a challenge there? So, again, in the adult population, with your partner, with your loved one, well, in the child, well, is there interpersonal challenges between mom and you or you and grandma or you and guardian? Now, if there's not, then I can't count that as a criteria. But if there is, then I got to say, well, that counts. Are you using more over a longer period of time than you anticipated? I.e., you know, I'll bring up my five guys. When I order a small fries, I'm just getting the small fries. But now if three months later, I'm, every time I continue to get the fries, I need larger and larger amounts to get the feeling of, oh, man, this is the fries that I want, Right. And unfortunately, in substance world, that discrepancy of small amount versus large amount is very imperceptible to just like the individual because you can get a higher concentration, right? So again, using for a longer period of time, higher amount. Then there's tolerance. Has tolerance been built up? Again, in the adult world, that's the, oh, you know, I just had a couple of drinks. I'm okay. Versus I don't think you're okay. You think you think you're okay, but I can recognize that you're not okay. Kids, tolerance is very nebulous because it doesn't take long. They're so much younger. They're smaller. They may not even recognize fully that there's an issue going on, but clearly other people around them recognize it. Withdrawal symptoms. So tobacco, nicotine, cannabis, opioids, alcohol, hallucinogens, many things, when you stop them abruptly, you're going to feel anxiety, distress, uh, challenges of appetite, challenges of sleeping, a little bit more irritable. So are those things happening? So that's another question that we, we would ask. Um, and so over the course of our actual clinical interview, our interdisciplinary meeting, we're logging all these things that are overtly asked about sometimes and it's sometimes covertly asked about, right? So oh, you told me mom has no issue with this? Well, that's interesting. When I talked with mom, she seemed to say that, you know, you have a curfew that's supposed to be 10 o'clock, but, hey, you're coming home at 12, and sometimes you're smelling like something. Like, what's that about? And it's like, ah, oh, but, you know, she just said that. And so it's like, no, 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 no. I think she's feeling something about that. So that's an interpersonal issue. But we don't walk around thinking to ourselves, oh, well, I have a smooth interpersonal relationship with my significant other. So that's just not how we're wired to kind of think about ourselves. So when we do the interview, we recognize that, oh, this is, you've actually met three of these. And so three is mild. And, oh, you're between 
four and five of these symptoms. Oh, man, you're at moderate use severe disorder. Oh, you have more than six of these criteria. Oh, you're at severe X substance use disorder. And so it's important to recognize that the point of the original question was like, well, suppose you don't want to push your child. The truth of the matter is I talk about many domains of life, interpersonal relationship. Another one I didn't say earlier was, do you forego activities that you previously enjoyed? And, and I've met that kid that used to play baseball and all of a sudden doesn't want to be on a team anymore. Not because they're not good, not because the practices were hard. Their interest is now shifted, and they don't even recognize that their interest is shifted. They just say, yeah, yeah, I don't like that anymore. It's like, really? Okay. Can I ask a follow-up question about that, about kids with anhedonia, I think that's called, right? They used to like wrestling, and now they just don't anymore, and you don't know why. That's also a symptom of depression. And if there are kids with depression and anxiety, that's the other at-risk group for substance use, right? And you have talked about how there's sort of a chicken and egg thing there that we think that kids are with anxiety and depression are using to self-medicate. And that's why there's a connection. But sometimes the connection can also be the other way around. In reference to like the ways in which a person can, you know, uh, traject towards substance use disorder. So the whole nurture versus nature. You could, and we do know this, there are some populations, even regionally, like around the world, are at greater risk because genetically there are differences in sometimes uh, enzymes that they have. So uh, one that I'm thinking about in our native population, right, American, Alaskan, Indian population, they happen to have a higher rate of alcohol use disorder. Well, interesting enough, in addition to just the higher rate, they're in that population. And again, this is just one that I'm referencing. There are others for different substances. You might find that there's a greater percentage that have like defects in some of the enzymes that, for instance, there's something called alcohol dehydrogenase. It actually breaks down alcohol for us. There are some populations that have one that's not functioning as well. And so interesting enough, when that alcohol dehydrogenase isn't functioning as well and you engage in alcohol, you are much more susceptible to feeling the sense of I'm tipsy. And so alcohol, there are some enzymes, opioids, same thing, nicotine, same thing. And the truth is, this is why I say we're all at risk because walking around, I don't really know, but what was it that my grandfather or my great-grandfather struggled with? Because maybe they're not around for me to really ask. And so everybody's kind of at risk, and yet some people don't realize it. And then this is also where it becomes very challenging in society because there's a lot of stigma. They're like, oh, well, how come you can't just do one? Or how come you can't just stop? It's like, well, they probably wish they could, but their gene, let's just say their gene turned on when they got exposed to, oh, wait a minute, this feels way different than other things that I've engaged in. And it's interesting, you meet people, they have no problem being prescribed an opioid, but cannabis, meaning like they've been prescribed it for a medical reason, they could use it, they stop appropriately. The cannabis, completely different monster in their world. And then there's other people, cannabis, they've had it once, twice, maybe five times. They're like, yeah, I don't really need it. And then nicotine, it's the thing that they can't stop. Or opioid is a thing that they can't, quote unquote, stop. If stop is the whole thing that we want people to do. So this is where the genetics of substance use disorder oftentimes isn't talked about enough, in my opinion, because the truth is just like people are susceptible of diabetes, 
susceptible of heart disease, susceptible of, you know, a number of conditions. There are people who are in our society that are genetically susceptible to substance use disorder. And there's many different substances that they could be at risk for. So again, that's why that one-liner was, many people are at risk, particularly youth. We got to delay as long as possible their engagement because we have also evidence that so there's longitudinal evidence. If you begin a substance or if the general population begins a substance before 15, 30 years later, okay, so they initiated the substance, and I just say substance just generically, substance, 30 years later, that population that began engagement before 15, greater than 60% are still engaging in substances. Mm. That is interesting. We're talking to Dr. Kevin Simon, and we'll be right back to talk a little bit more. I want to dig on on this now. Prevention and intervention. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different and fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. Okay, so we were talking. I feel like we've, I was definitely raised on the like, well, I mean, I wasn't raised this way, but I mean, I feel like we were of the generation of, well, we'll let them drink at home. It's safer than them being out. And and the French people, they drink and they don't have problems with it. And so let's talk really practically for the moms who are listening and the dads who are listening and saying, okay, I see all this picture and I'm freaking out. What are some early intervention action items. Is it a good idea to let kids drink at home so that they, quote unquote, get used to it? And I just want to put a button on that last point. So I told you about the 415, that 
same population, if you engage or begin to engage after 21, 30 years later, less than 10% of people are still engaging. In, in any substance use or in a, have a disorder? So this is engaging with substances broadly. So it's not just like substance use disorder, but just substances generally. So I just wanted to put a button on that. In terms for of- For sure, for sure. Because that's the, it ties into this question of like, when should you start, I guess? Right. And so speaking to American culture, so I'll just, you know, focus here. We wouldn't say you should be, you know, permissive of engaging in substances in the home. In part, it creates the wrong model. Right. And so, okay, I had a drink with dad. Well, now when you're with your friends and there's, let's say, you know, the Bud Light. You're like, oh, well, I had it with dad. You know, he wouldn't mind. Right. And so and then when it comes to light that that's happening. But dad, like, we had it together. It becomes hard to like, yes, but we had it together. But you're only supposed to have it with me, not with your friends. So. You should describe the risk related to substances as people get older. And so I'm going to say above 16. The same type of conversation that you would be having with your 16-year-old about other kind of, some would say, adult activities, right? You should be having about substances, right? Just the same way you probably wouldn't, again, I'm thinking to American culture. Good chance you're not going to be telling your 10-year-old, again, about, oh, hey, let's just have this kind of activity between you and me, it's controlled. I'm watching it. You wouldn't likely tell that 10-year-old, oh, hey, you can kind of do this thing with somebody else. But as long as it's in our house, it's okay, right? It's an adult behavior. So clinically, that's how we kind of see substance. It's, it's a behavior. And so we try to, because sometimes parents will push back and say, oh, well, it's only cannabis. It's like, yeah, I don't want to distinguish good substances from hard substances, soft substances. No, no, no. Any substance at any time can be dangerous for a person. And so I don't want to, and you, ideally, you don't want to be trying to distinguish your child. Well, as long as you don't do those, you can do these. So there's this notion, right, that introducing kids to substances at the age of like 14, 15, 13, heaven forbid that their brains are very plastic, right? And you're going to light up their reward centers. And what we're saying, well, this is just a sip of wine at Thanksgiving dinner. It's fine. They would never, it's not pot. It's just a little bit of wine at dinner. Is there a connection between once those reward centers for substances are opened up, you're creating potentially somebody who's more likely to have a pain medicine problem in 30 years? Like, is it substances or substances in that way? We call this the critical window. So there is a critical window that when I meet somebody or the literature would suggest if you meet somebody and you're in that 13 to 14 year old window time and they began to engage, there is a strong chance that that is going to be the 35, 45, 55 year old individual that has an ongoing substance use disorder. And some of the evidence that we have is 95% of the adults that meet a clinical criteria for substance use disorder, 95 of the adults that meet the criteria for clinical substance use disorder began their engagement with substances before 18. And so, yeah, before 18. And we know on the youth side, oh, that critical window is 13 and 14. And oftentimes, again, clinically, I'm in a dual diagnosis clinic. 
a lot of the patients that we meet, even those that are, are a little bit older, when we say, oh, when was the first engagement? You might be surprised. Like some will say, oh, seven, eight, nine. And it's like, oh. Now, there are those that have the early engagement, yes, have high ACE scores, right? So there's been trauma. There's been broken, fractured home. There's been abuse, right? So it's not to say that it's just the average kind of individual is, again, if you've been exposed at nine or 10, there's a whole host of other things going on in your life that are happening, right? And so that's the other piece that we, at least I and, and our team try to emphasize that it's not the substance, right? Because if that substance was used when they're 25 or 35, you probably wouldn't be seen, right? But there must be some other things going on. And so let's think about what are those other things. So again, Earlier, I talked about the idle time. Well, pro-social peer engagement should be happening for youth. But now I meet you, and yes, he or she is not engaged in positive pro-social peer activities. How do we help them get introduced to those activities, right? And now here it is, I'm 16, 17 years old, and I don't think I have the skills or the, the wherewithal to introduce myself to some new novel thing, right? Be it a sport or be it... Uh, writing, right? This is where the anxiety comes in. Because you don't want to feel like you haven't mastered something. That's literally one of the stages of development in adolescence is like, I want to be able to tell you. That's why my five-year-old is like, Daddy, look, I drew a butterfly, right? They want to overtly demonstrate, I know how to do this thing. It's why they, kids like to, you know, again, when I say kids six, seven years old, like challenging each other. I tied it first. I tied it fastest, right? Now imagine... You don't have those kind of positive experiences. And now you're 17, and I have this in my head uh, clinically, 17, and I say, okay, what can we get you into? Because you have to now experience what it's like to not know something the best, to struggle at the activity, and yet the reward pathway that you've kind of primed yourself to experience is you get things really quickly, you get positive feedback very quickly. And so now you're in writing class. And the teacher gives you some feedback. You think you're going to sit down and feel confident and comfortable like, oh, okay, Margaret told me that I used the conjunction incorrectly. No, you're like, I don't have the patience for this, right? So when I say it's a behavior is what we're trying to address, it really is the behavior. The behavior I have to be focusing on is the behavior of engaging substances that do have some other downstream consequences that can be lethal. But it's the behavior. It's not mom is... I know. Let's, and even when I meet somebody, let's classic example here. 16-year-old individual, poly substance use, opioid use disorder, cannabis use disorder, alcohol, tobacco. I meet them in an emergency room and it's like, okay, there's a lot going on. We will at that time try to say, let's address the most critical substance that is at risk of harming them like acutely. So opioid, cannabis, alcohol, tobacco. Okay opioid because that you can easily overdose so for that individual okay let's get opioid management quick okay got them with suboxone for instance now and I'm, I'm titrating the medication we're still working on it but they're on the suboxone now we still have cannabis tobacco and alcohol yes i'm trying to address them all but i'm probably trying to address alcohol because it's the one that you drive drunk dui you hurt other people so I'm trying to really mitigate, like, the alcohol. Oh, now we have, and let's say their motivational interview that I'm engaging with them, 
they're recognizing, okay, you know, I'm going to try to not have 18 drinks in the day down to nine drinks, not have nine drinks on Tuesday, but okay, let's get it to Saturday, right? So there's a bit of harm reduction. There's a bit of medication management that's happening. Now we're still talking about, okay, tobacco and cannabis. Then I'm going to say, okay, you know what? Cannabis is very challenging. There's a good chance that if you try to get a job, they're going to drug test you. It's going to show up. It's in your system for a very long time. Let's try to work on that. And then tobacco, it's like, okay, you're vaping every day. Question I will often ask individuals is, when you wake up, how long does it take before you hit your vape? And by and large, those that are using high concentration vaping devices, within 30 minutes, they have, they're, they're hitting their vape. Definitely within the hour, right? So I say, okay, is that, and then all of this, right, all these four substances that I just happened to mention, the person has to kind of, in some way, shape, and form, recognize the inkling that they want to shift. And maybe that wanting to shift is because they're tired of mom and dad yelling at them. And they're tired of being grounded. So that becomes the carrot. Oh, wait, you want to drive, don't you? Don't you want to get, right? So we're using their environment. We're using, or I'm using their environment. I'm using the things that I know that they likely want to do. And putting that as a carrot and trying to infuse what we call motivational interviewing, sometimes trying to infuse medications. Sometimes we have um, adolescent groups. Um, so it's a whole, you know, a teen is a dynamic like entity. There's no cookie cutter model for, you could tell every teen the same exact thing. It's like, no, that can't work. We have to have a toolbox and be primed and ready to, oh, this one, I need this tool. Oh, now I need this tool. Oh, now I need that tool. And we have many families that, you know, years later will say, we were in your program. You may not even remember who we are, but my gosh, thank you all for what you're doing. Because now my son, daughter is doing X, Y, Z and better. And it's very hard to like experience that and hear Dr. Simon saying, oh, trust me, mom, you got to be patient. It's like patient. And I wanted to stop today. It's like, I know. But Rome wasn't built in a day. This treatment won't happen in a day. But that persistence and consistency, it often does help. And I tell families all the time, like, what you're really trying to learn to do is dance differently with your kid. And the reason I say dance differently is, is, you know, you can, we all fall into patterns of engagement and that tension or that yelling. There's always psychological like, explanations for why these things are happening. It's like, okay, do we want to break this pattern? All right, let's learn how to dance differently. So, for instance, mom, and this is a true example, mom comes in and she's hot. She's like, Dr. Simon, he did this, she did that. I say, okay, I'm going to allow you to have your frustration here because I can only imagine if this is how you're coming to me, what it must be like in the household. And so I'm also demonstrating to them in a therapeutic way what it's like to actually be present and mindful of, oh, wait a minute, I am yelling. Why am I yelling? It's like, yeah, why are you yelling? I'm trying to help you, right? And so you need to have those kind of, and this is where the, the true family dynamic therapy is helpful. You can help families become keenly aware of what it is that, how they sound. It's like, you don't even recognize you're yelling. <laughs> I'm not yelling, I'm just talking loudly. It's like, oh, well, you know, so... So these dynamics are happening in treatment. So again, the idea of introducing the substance early, again, in a very controlled, 
cultural way. So disclosure here again. So my family were Haitian American, or my parents were born in Haiti. I was born here, Haitian American. There's a beverage. It's like eggnog is the equivocal, and and yes, there's some alcohol in it. So we call it cremas, cremas. And yes, around the New Year, there might be cremas available. You are not giving a 10-year-old, eight ounces of cremas, right? You recognize that the parents, you know, the, the family is engaging in it. And it might be that you taste it, like literally, you know, you taste it. And you say, oh, that's what it is. But you're not going to get the experience of being able to actually have cremas until you're of age. So so that's the thing. And that's, again, culture, that's once a year. That's different than, oh, cremas, you know, every Wednesday. It's like, no, 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 that, that's, that's too much exposure the brain. And can we finish by talking about you have a five-year-old and a two-year-old at home, which I assume is a little young to be talking about substance use and best practices, but when is the right age to start talking? Yeah, so the right age to start talking is the age at which you you expose your child to many things, which is, it depends, right? So my daughter, she has like braids in her hair right now. And there was a time where she comes home and she's like, I want straight hair. And my wife's like, All right, what's going on? I was like, well, let's just, let's keep listening, right? It's like, oh, you know, why? And well, interesting enough, she watches Frozen. She's seeing a lot of things that suggest, oh, her curly hair is not the kind of hair that she'd want. And I'm bringing this up because there's always ways to have like constructive, engaging conversations that help you understand where your kid is at and how you can be positively affirming to them, right? And so we want to make sure that, you know, you're hanging around the right kind of people, right? So we know her friend's parents. When she becomes the eight-year-old, we're probably still going to want to know her friend's parents. We're going to try to suggest the kinds of families or kinds of people we want her around. So you're always signaling to your kid, what's the expectation of our household versus what's happening in the world, right? And so you don't have to say, well, I don't say, Brooke, you cannot ever have a vape. No, that's that's too direct. And it's like, what's a vape, daddy? Right. <laughs> now you're really in trouble. <laughs> but over time, as we continue to have these kind of open conversations, and I get to hear what she's thinking about, when she is in middle school, I could suggest to her, you know, there are some things that, you know, maybe your friends, you see, you see your friends do, or you see some people doing in the bathroom, honey, like we can't do that, right? What thing, daddy? There's some people, you might see it in the bathroom. It might smell a little odd. You let me know if you recognize that or you see that. Please let me know. But I'm not telling her, let me know and you're going to get in trouble. Open. Hey, let me know. So Open conversation, right? We just did that with one of my kids in New York City. I was like, oh, that's weed. And then the kid was like, I smell weed. I smell weed. I was like, you can say that every 10 seconds as we walk around New York City. It was, but it was like, he was so proud of himself. Like, I know what weed is. So having those conversations, you didn't hear me say, yes, have it at four years old or five. You, But you should be having open conversations. And if you want to, you know, call in your child psychologist or child psychiatrist to inquire, well, how do I have the conversation? There are people out there that can help families to have those types of conversations. Because oftentimes, if you're not having it, oh, they're having it with somebody. All the misguided facts of life. I was like the neighborhood town crier. Terrible. (laughs) Yeah. 
Somebody's having it with them. Yep. Amy Wilson used to sit on the fire escape behind her school and tell the kids all they needed to know about. Yeah. So if you don't want Amy Wilson explaining it to your kid, you better be explaining it to them. Yeah, it is so true. And I'll tell you, my niece, she's a senior and my sister sees me on a show and this was probably two years ago. So she would have been a sophomore. She said, oh, mommy, (laughs) you know, back in, again, elementary school, such and such was suspended because she brought in alcohol in her like bottle, like water bottle. And my sister was like, wait, what? I'm just hearing about this now? Yeah, exactly, right? It's like, wait, why am I hearing about this now? And then why are you, oh, well, I heard Uncle Kevin talking about. And so these things are happening very, very early. So it's never actually too early to have appropriate types of conversations about what's, and I'm just going to say that your household expectation of, you know, what's, you know, okay and not okay. It's the same way, you know, that's not nice. You shouldn't you know, yell at that person or no, KJ, that's my son. No, we don't hit people. <laughs> you know, yes, I know you want to hit daddy. You hit daddy, that's okay. But no, we can't hit Brooke. Because I need to say that overtly because I don't want him to also then go in his preschool class and they're like, oh, he's hitting people. I'm like, yeah, yeah, because I, I passively let it okay in the household. So he just thinks it's okay to do. It's like, no, 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 hold on, buddy. Let's give our sister a hug. And then they get a the little fake hug. But you want to you have to model those things very early on because they will be the seeds that turn into the tree, that turns into the branches. So the conversations can never start early enough. We've been talking to Dr. Kevin Simon. He is an addiction medicine specialist at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Simon, tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet and follow all of your studies and new things that you're working on. Yeah, so individuals can find me on, I guess, Twitter or X at DR or Dr. K.M. Simon, same thing on LinkedIn. And yeah, if there's publications that come out, they tend to get posted on those two platforms. Uh, and folks can find me there. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Really great conversation. Really appreciate it. Lots to think about. And uh, we will link to uh, Dr. Simon on Twitter, X, LinkedIn, everywhere he talked about, so you can find him. And thank you so much for talking to us today. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks. 
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.